don't go and buy a property with the intent of doing a short-term rental until you have like those, like, again, what we're talking about is the steps, the software is in place. You're familiar with them because, um, you know, it, it can take a little while. Like I, I'm a big believer in going a bit slower at the beginning to go faster later. Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, thanks for joining in on yet another episode. I'm Jeanette Robinson, and joining me today is Riley Oikel. Riley is the CEO and founder of RO Capital Investments. Uh, in addition to this, he also owns rentalconsulting.com, where he specializes in some interesting programs, one of them being a joint venture program. Uh, he also does some private lending um, in addition to uh, single family and multifamily investments. He owns over 70 uh, short-term rental properties in his portfolio as well. He's also the co-founder of B&B Inner Circle, and he actually started his very first business in college detailing homes. Uh, so I can tell that you are definitely a lifelong entrepreneur. He has a BA from Western University, and he is joining us today from London, Ontario, as in Canada. Hey, Riley, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's a very impressive bio you have there. Yeah, I, I think I... Uh... Yeah, I was like, did I do all that? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds that sounds it. So yeah, it's been quite the journey. I've really enjoyed it, learned a lot. And, uh, you know, much more to come too. I'm really looking forward to to where we can go from here. So yeah, definitely. That's definitely part of the fun of it all. Um, very cool. Well, I thought for um, a fun way to kind of open up our discussion today, I did a little research and I thought the readers might find it interesting to know some of the differences between commercial real estate investing in the United States versus in Canada, uh, which I didn't even know any of these until literally today. So uh, one little fun fact I found is that it's, um, it's common for Canadians to utilize RRSPs, which are registered retirement savings plans for their investments, much in the same way that we use IRAs here in the US. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. So the RRSP investing, it's, it's, quite common here. Um, there's quite a bit to it. Like you have to make sure that you're with the right bank. Olympia trust tends to be the best bank here in Canada, but you'd have to make sure your funds are in there. There's a really good book. If anyone's looking to do it, it's uh, it's called RRSP secrets uh, with Greg. I think his last name's Halbit or Halbrit and uh, awesome book. And it definitely explains all the ins and the outs of like how to do RRSP investing. But uh, yeah, same idea. Very cool. All right. Now this next one oh, made me hurt, but then I was impressed also. So it's, ah, I, I don't know. I'd have to think more about this one. So apparently in Canada, there are no 1031 exchanges or kind of other approaches like that for deferring the capital gains tax. But I learned that in Canada, you only have to pay capital gain tax on 50% of the net gain instead of all of it. Now that is very interesting. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's how that works. And then you can also defer some of that as well, but you can't do it the same way as a 1031, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I, I definitely envy the 1031 there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a favorite for all real estate investors. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, fun fact there. And then the last one that I also thought um, was interesting, and again, this is a, it's a little wordy, but stick with me, is that in US, REITs are usually owned by corporations while uh, Canadian REITs are usually mutual fund trust. 
and U.S. REITs are required to pay out 90% of taxable income to shareholders uh, through distributions versus there's a 100% rule for Canadian REITs. Wow. Yeah, that one's over my head. I, I actually wasn't familiar <laughs> with that one, but that's a Yeah, I, fair. I, I haven't been involved in any REITs or anything yet. And uh, but but yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Um, very interesting. I, yeah, I just thought it was a fun just facts. Fun, yeah, some mm. fun facts to learn about some of the differences between commercial real estate investing in the US and in Canada. Uh, so good. We both learned something new today then. So anyway, though, moving on, um, let's talk about your business model. So it's really interesting to me. So you have a blended model between short-term holds and long-term holds with both single-family and multifamily uh, assets. So explain to me the rationale between that blended model. Why did you decide to do it that way? Of course. Well, I'd like to be able to say that this was all planned out at the very onset and it wasn't. And I don't think it ever ends up usually being that way. It's kind of been a slow evolution into that hybrid model. We started off with long-term rentals. So I had bought quite a few long-term rentals in Southwestern Ontario here up North in Canada. And they were, you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. And uh, they did pretty well. They were cash flowing about 200 to $300 per month per unit. So that's pretty good uh, for, for what we see here in cash flow. And, um, and, and we, we made sure that we were buying in, in real strong areas and able to attract really great tenants with like a fresh renovation. And so the tenants were great. It was stabilized and it was, still wasn't cash flowing that well. Like, you know, we, we need a lot of units in order to cash flow and hit the goals that we had for cash flow. That's why, why, why we explored short-term rentals because, you know, it might not be as stable, you know, um, all the time is like a long-term rental uh, where it's a 12 month lease though w- with short-term rentals, you can really cash flow a lot. And so the cash flow came in to complement the kind of lack of cash flow with long-term rentals. And so we had the stabilization aspect of the long terms and then the short terms were the cash flow. And so for the whole portfolio, it was very, again, complimentary. Um, the banks really like that model where we have a lot of cash flow coming into the portfolio for additional financing. Um, but we still have the long terms there to to act as again that kind of foundation of the portfolio. So short terms definitely are more, more luxurious. Uh, and when economies come down and they're not doing as well, they might not perform as well. That's why the long terms are there to make sure you have the foundation. But when the market is doing really well and it's hot and you know the economy is booming, those short terms really do come in as a, a kind of rocket fuel to, for the cash flow. Yeah, no, it's very smart. I can definitely appreciate it uh, for sure. What would you say are some of the interesting challenges that are, um, you know, different between those two types of approaches? Sure. Yeah, I think a few of the obvious ones that I've seen for short terms versus long terms is when I have my long term rentals, it's a 12 month lease. Usually the, the tenants that we have, we treat them really well. So they end up staying for usually a couple of years, two, three years. And so we usually set the rent. We can do like a 2% increase a year or something on average, usually here in Canada, but we set the rent and we forget it. And so where my, where is my short-term rentals? The price is ever changing. You know, the average nightly rate is changing based on supply and demand. And so new year's Eve, obviously the price is triple what it usually is on like a regular evening. Um, and so the price is changing. We have to be aware of events and, you know, other activities that are going on in the area with the short-term rentals and make sure the price is, adapted accordingly. So price optimization, quite a bit different. There's a lot of guests that come in on any given year. We might have a hundred plus guests for one of our short-term rental properties. And so that's a lot of wear and tear. So there's more general maintenance for short terms. Um, also, it's just a lot more communication with, with the guests. Whereas with my tenants, they might message every six months 
with my short term rentals, they might message me, um, you know, like say like, you know, a couple times a day sort of thing, right? When you have a guest that's coming in for the first time, but th that's why it's so much more important to have good systems and a team in place with your short term rentals. Whereas with my long term rentals, you don't need as much of a, of a team or systems in place. You can get away with doing less uh, and still having it be semi passive. Those yeah. are the cons, I guess, for the short term, uh, you know, and the, and the pros for the long and then vice versa. I would say the long terms just, again, don't cash flow as well. Um, you have to be more patient, whereas the short terms, they can cash flow a lot. Um, I also just got kind of bored with my long term rentals, to be honest. <laughs> a lot of them are just like, you know, white walled, um, gray floors, white cabinets, plain Jane. With my short term rentals, it's, it's a blast. Like I get so passionate around the designing getting the amenities. We have a Pac-Man machine at one property and a, and, a, and a movie room like with a projector. And so we actually get to use these properties as more of a lifestyle asset as well. And so that's a huge pro for the short-term rentals. We have quite a few cottages and we get to go in kind of in the summertime. If there's a vacancy for a few nights, we'll go up there and spend the night at cottage. Um, you know, so, so that works well. Whereas I don't do that obviously with my long-term rentals. Um, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, uh, you know, talk to me about this B&B &B inner circle. So this sounds really interesting. Um, what is the concept kind of behind this and why did you start it? Right. Well, when we started buying short-term rentals, we, we recognized that, again, like with all the guests coming in and out of the property and all of the work that needs to be done with guest communication, the maintenance, the cleaning turnovers, the price optimization, those, those are the big ones. Um, there was just so many step-by-steps that needed to be created in order to actually make this business passive. Cause every business can be passive. It's just a matter of you having really good step-by-steps and then being able to find a great person to work within those steps, if that makes sense. And so um, family and friends were reaching out to me and, and my business partner, James, around how, how are we buying these cottages? Like, how does all this work? They, some of my long-term rental friends had been watching me on my journey into short-term rentals. And they were wondering, I, I've been worried about short-term rentals. I've thinking it was challenging being scared of it because it is active. I don't want to be out for dinner, having to message guests back and all that stuff. And so, we, so we, again, just started helping people that were kind of in our, our little um, group there, right. Our, our friends, family, and then, strangers started reaching out and being like, what are you guys doing? Like, like, you know, and so we kind of made this playbook. It's like an operation manual, all the steps. And, and we, we essentially help people that want to get started in short-term rentals. They want to buy, you know, their first short-term rental, um, potentially even flipping over some long-terms into short-term rentals. And then there's also a, a portion of our clients now for BNB Inner Circle that have short-term rentals already, and they're looking to optimize them. They're like underperforming. They're not doing that well. Maybe they're using a management company that's charging them just a crazy high fee. And so we, we help them to systemize and then keep a lot of that stuff internal uh, while still having it be, you know, semi-passive. Very cool. Now, if you don't mind, I don't expect you to share all your secret sauce, of course, but um, what are some of these steps or these processes that people have to put in place in order to really be able to, you know, optimize uh, the investment for themselves? Sure. Um, to optimize the investment. Uh, the, yeah. We've never been able to look, we've never looked under the hood of one of the businesses and saw like everything being done really, really well. It's usually done mediocre at best. Um, and, and so what, what we, what we found is it's usually underperforming because of the price is just too high or too low. 
And so we have like a price optimization spreadsheet. And so based on the nights uh, in the future and how far in the future they might be and the vacancy amount, like, you know, it, right now is it that 50% occupancy? Is it below that? Like, and then what events are coming to town? We'll look at all that. We'll have it on a spreadsheet. We can figure out, okay, should the price go up or should it come down? And so there's usually a lot of properties that are just underperforming um, and losing a lot, a, a lot of revenue. So that's the first one we'll look at. We'll also just look at their, their guest communication practices. A lot of the time people aren't using these, these great softwares that exist where you can do um, canned messages that go to the guests like uh, on the Airbnb or, or BRBO platform. And a lot of them are just like texting each single message to the guest. Um, a lot of them are using like other softwares too, like host fully is a great one as, as an example, a quick tip um, for like a virtual guest book. And so, you know, th those work quite well to answer a lot of the questions that the guests might have. Otherwise you're going to have to answer a lot of them like clockwork, every single check-in and check-out. And so there, there's a lot, you know, quite a few things like that that you can automate. Um, yeah. Usually again, if someone has asked the question once before and um, they've asked it again, like someone else asked it again, and you, you foresee it being another question that they ask in the future, that's an example of a time that we'd actually go and take that, put it into the guest book. So it's answered for everyone to come. So then that question usually doesn't pop back up. So what would be your advice that you would give to, uh, you know, any, any investors out there that want to actually start including short-term rentals as part of their portfolio? Yeah, I would say don't go and buy a property. <laughs> don't go and buy a property with the intent of doing a short-term rental until you have like those, like, again, what we're talking about is the steps, the software is in place. You're familiar with them because, um, you know, it, it can take a little while. Like I, I'm a big believer in going a bit slower at the beginning to go faster later. And so let's actually set up the business to operate before we actually go and put an asset, like a, a short-term rental property into the portfolio. It's much easier that way than to be behind the eight ball a bit and be very reactive in buying a property and then having to figure out everything afterwards because it can feel very stressful, honestly. And we've seen that quite a few times with people that start working with us, but they're in a panic uh, because they've already bought a property. And now it's like not making money yet because they have to set up all this stuff in the background. And it can feel like you're in an airplane assembling it in midair. And so we, we want to make sure that we're assembling it on the ground first where the risk is lower or it's less kind of stressful and reactive. And so that, that's my biggest piece of advice is prep first, get ready, and then buy the asset after. Now, before we get into talking about uh, how it is that you structure your JV program, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital. Be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Um, okay, now, if you don't mind, I'd love to pivot over to this JV program that you have. Uh, it really caught my attention. So can you explain to both me and the listeners here, what is this JV program that you have? How does it work? Yeah, well, when I got started in real estate investing, I, I had a coach, um, like a mentor of mine that had, had told me his one regret when he had started off investing was that he didn't do it earlier through joint venturing. 
Um, and so I, I looked into joint venturing and figured it out. And essentially, it just allowed me to buy properties um, earlier on than I probably otherwise could have. And so I had very little money saved and no mortgage capability, but I had a lot of my time and I had gained a lot of knowledge, like, you know, through going to a lot of conferences, meetups, events, hiring coaches and all that good stuff. And so I had the knowledge and I had the time, just didn't have the money or the mortgage. And so I ended up finding some people that would, would co-own the property with me in a joint venture. And we owned, owned it 50, 50. Uh, we did about 16 of them in like two, two and a half years. And we, we co-owned it 50-50. So that means that they had 50% of that equity. I had 50%. They had 50% cash flow. I had 50%. And it j- just was really the way that I could start building up that portfolio and getting a lot of the actual uh, experience in, in the portfolio before um, I, could, I could get my own money or mortgage. And then we, we continue to use that today as a best practice because I'll, I'll end up using my own mortgage capability and tapping that out. And then based on my goals that year, we might pivot and continue buying more property using joint venture. And, and so I did that for quite a while and then recognized, yeah, again, same idea here. Um, it, this is the pattern, I guess, in my life is like, figure something out. I break it down. I'm very systematic, break it down into steps. And then other people are like, can you help me with this? And so we, we essentially started a coaching program to help people do what, what I had done there. Um, very cool. Very cool. And it definitely makes sense. I can understand easily how it allowed you to scale much faster. Um, that's definitely some of the, the benefits of it. Now, I personally, you know, think of... Uh, Joint ventures is almost like marriage, man. That's a very serious partnership, though. That's a very serious relationship. It sounds great and lovely if everything goes well, but if things don't, you know, it can be uh, a lot harder. So what is the advice that you give to people when they're evaluating someone that they're going to potentially do a joint venture with? How do you actually advise people to screen, you know, partners? Yeah, you're you're totally right. This is not a weekend affair. This is not something that you're like, yeah, we're just going to tie the knot for a weekend and be done with it. Like yeah. these terms that we have in JVs are usually five years minimum as the term. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always break it down into, you want to really know, like, and trust them. Um, and, and that can take a little bit of time. Like this is not like a couple of text messages or a phone call or a zoom call or two. Um, you, you know, I, I've always taken my JVs out for like a dinner um, before we ever kind of start working together. Like we've, we've had a lot of conversations, three, four conversations. We've gone out for a dinner. We've, we've broken bread in a way. And I really have said no to a lot of people, um, that have thought about working with us. So, you know, I'm very selective. It's usually starting with friends or family, people that I already know, like, and trust a lot. And I have that rapport with them. I have the, the track record with them. I know who they are really well. And then working into people that I, I don't know as much, I still need to get them into that kind of know, like, and trust category and have them really act as a friend. I wouldn't want to go into business with someone for five years if I didn't want to, you know, maybe grab a beer with them or really like, like spend good time with them outside of the business. And so that's been my rule of thumb that has worked really, really well. Um, my most successful JVs have been people that I've, I, I can really call my friends that I've, I've spent a good amount of time with prior to jumping in with. And, um, and they've all worked it well, but ultimately, again, it does come down to setting proper expectations, um, asking good questions during the kind of onboarding and, and enrollment, and then as well, having a, a really well, properly structured joint venture agreement. I think that's the other kicker is when there is that misalignment throughout, because you're never going to always agree. And so when there is that misalignment, having those clauses in there that we can lean on and look at and be like, oh, yeah, we did agree to that at the beginning that's how we're going to deal with this situation is we're going to do X, Y, and Z to figure out the next best step. 
Because if that isn't in the agreement, then you get stuck and now it's uh, it can become a battle, you know, and you, you can lose sight of you're both on the same team. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like I, I think like anything, communication is so important. And so I think that's another skill that if you're going to do joint ventures, you got to get really good at is being a good communicator and making sure that you also attract someone to work with. That is also a good communicator, because if one person is good at communicating, but the other isn't, there's still going to be that misalignment all the time. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I think it's also really important to make sure you have the the processes identified also between both parties um, in advance, because I mean, much like the business um, analogy that you used earlier, you don't want to be building these things in real time, right? You, you want to be able to actually make sure everything's established nice and smoothly before you start to execute deals together. All right. Well, Riley, this has all been really interesting. Um, before we let you go, we do have what we call the lightning round questions which are five questions that I ask every guest that we have on the show. So are you ready? I think so. Yes, I'm ready. Yes. All right. <laughs> um, you already have a lot of different companies and you're doing a lot of different things. So what do you actually do for fun? What do I do for fun? I'm, I'm very outdoors. Um, you know, like I love the outdoors going for, for hikes outside, um, camping. And, uh, you know, I, I guess if I'm, if I'm in the country, in the winter snowmobiling up here in Canada is, is a lot of fun or, uh, driving ATVs. Um, you know, I grew up by the ocean, so I, I like, um, going into, into the ocean as well. And yeah, so, so just being outside in nature, I would say would be my, my main source of, of fun. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I actually also love camping and I don't meet a lot of people that really do. So very cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Now the next question for you is what is something that most people don't know about you? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good one. I, uh, yeah, I would say biggest thing would be that I didn't have internet until like grade 11. I guess wow. that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. That, that, I was like, you know, 20, what was that, 17, mm -hmm. um, when I had internet. And so uh, growing up without internet for, for, for that long, you know, big deal. Um, so I guess that's probably something that a lot of people didn't know. Um, growing up in a rural community, like the tree line was just so high and you know, um, the, the internet companies didn't come in yet. So actually Elon Musk came in with, with Starlink. And so the satellite <laughs> saved us. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. That is definitely a unique, uh, unique fact that you have there. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Now, what about when it comes to reading books, what book would you definitely recommend every investor should have in their library? Yeah. I think the E-Myth, you know, it, it's not your classic real estate book you know it isn't written from uh, for real estate investors specifically but i i really do like the emeth to figure out the different types of people within entrepreneurship or being uh, in business so the technician i think is what a lot of real estate investors end up falling into and being the one that's doing the painting or laying the flooring or you know the one doing even acquisitions or property management and so it, the faster you can get to that business mastery of like actually working on the business, which is what they go over in the, in the book, the better. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That sounds like a very good read. I think it's a very good suggestion. Um, all right. Uh, now, one of our goals here at Blue Lake Capital is really to help our investors build extraordinary lives. Uh, you know, well beyond just money and returns. And, you know, it's really about, you know, people's lives. And so what would be your advice for uh, people that want to build an extraordinary life? My advice would be an extraordinary life is usually looking at, 
in my mind, health, wealth, and happiness. And so those are the three main pillars. I'm quite holistic with all three. And so, you know, health, that's mental health, that's physical health. And so obviously we all know what that kind of looks like and just making sure that 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 works in your life. And then the wealth aspect is active income. If you need, you know, money to live on day to day, week to week, month to month. And so having a good active income job or business and then wealth creation is the other aspect, which is obviously real estate investing. That's uh, owning property. And, um, and, and so that's usually what we retire on or the generational wealth that we hand over to our children. Uh, and then the happiness aspect for me, that's always been relationships. And so friends and family and, and taking time with myself too. And so those are the three main pillars I find. And that's what it means for me, at least to be successful and have, have an extraordinary life. Awesome. Very good. All right. And then last but not least, Riley, if our guests want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Sure. Yeah, they can, they can just, um, you know, find me on Instagram there or Facebook at Riley Oikel or the two websites that we have for coaching would be B&B Inner Circle for the short-term rentals. And then for the long-term rentals, you can go to rentalconsulting.com. All right. Perfect. Well, Riley, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Definitely appreciate it. And for those of you tuning in, thank you as well. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. And be sure to let us know more of what you'd like to hear about. And in the meantime, make sure to be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.